Good to see everyone. Um, hey, Jim, would you do me a favor? I just um, take these. If, if anyone did not get one of these this morning, would you just raise your hand? Um, we want to be sure you have our these beautiful cards Jeremy did for us. Pastor Jonathan is going to uh, be teaching, at least at the beginning of this session, and then we will probably use most of the second half tonight for Q&A. I think there may be a good deal of interest on this subject. So that's what the plan is, and then uh, again next week we will we will probably do this one more time, depending on how much interest, how much uh, curiosity, how many questions there are, and so forth. So um, I'm just going to ask uh, Jonathan to come. And if you have never received or if you haven't gotten a packet of uh, information, articles on this subject, we still have a few left there in the lobby. In fact, you can, you can feel at liberty to get up and go get one during this time. So let's, uh, let me pray, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of worship again. Thank you for the Lord's Day, for the refreshment it is to our souls, and for the type it is of the eternal Sabbath that we long for uh, when we will enter finally into our rest, even as you did after you created. We thank you that that rest has been purchased for us by the Lord Jesus. We thank you that there's a sense in which we can rest in him now, and yet we must fight and labor. So bless us tonight as as we continue to worship you. We ask that you would bless our pastor as he takes some time to open your word on this subject. Give us wisdom, Lord. Help us to understand the, the true intent of not just the apostle, but of you especially and what you meant when you inspired him to write. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to spend the uh, bulk of our time tonight in this chapter, um, this text, and uh, let me go ahead and pray as well as is typically my pattern. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you. We are grateful to be here and to be gathered with your church. And Father, I pray that you would help us as we look at your word and that you would give us insight and wisdom and knowledge and understanding and that we would, Lord, that we would please you 
and that we would follow your word, that we would obey your word, that we would be eager to do all that it says to us. And we thank you for this privilege. It's awesome. It's awesome to have a copy of your word in our hands. And uh, so many people, generations before us, would have done so much had they just had a copy in their hands. So many people. There are people that are persecuted right now in the world that would just love to have a copy of the Word of God in their hands. So may we, may we're fat, we're rich people. So help us to cherish this Word and help us as we look into it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the next two weeks, we're going to look at this subject of women and prayer in the local church, and we're going to look at it from a couple of different angles and using a couple of different texts. And this evening, I want to focus all of our attention in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because this is a pivotal text for understanding what Paul means when he uses some of the language that he uses. And so we want to do careful exegesis, and we want to make sure that we're clear on what Paul intends us to be clear about. Much, a whole lot has been written on this subject of the role of women in the local church. And despite a variety of viewpoints um, on this deal, there are really three basic approaches to the subject. Talking about, let's talk about philosophical approaches to a sensitive subject like this. There's really three. The first of these is what I would call the traditional approach, which maintains that Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 14 are culturally transcendent and normative. That means they apply to all cultures across all times and therefore are normative for us today. Okay? Now, let me, let me just insert right here before we go on. Let me just look at a couple. Let's just read a couple of verses here to, to make this palpable for you. Okay? What are we talking about? 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, let's just pick it up in... In verse 26, he's talking about orderly worship. He says, then, he says this, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace." As in all the churches of the saints, the, woman, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now we'll stop there. So when you come to language like that, that obviously is very provocative language. And so there's really three kind of approaches, as I'm saying, to words like this, and particularly this passage. And the first is what I called, again, the traditional approach, which says, you know, this, this maintains that Paul's words here are culturally transcendent and they're normative. They apply to all cultures and all times. The second approach is what I would call the hermeneutical approach. 
And this is the approach that asserts that generally accepted principles of interpretation will prove that these Pauline prohibitions are specific for Paul's culture and therefore they're not normative for us. So interpretation, it becomes an interpretation issue. Okay, the third approach is the critical approach. And this approach assigns one or more of these difficult texts to someone other than Paul. In other words, the the idea here is to save Paul, and I put that in quotations, from the charge of male chauvinism. In other words, they argue that Paul is really quoting someone else here. And so when he says, do not permit a woman to teach, he's actually quoting some other document or some other source, and then he's going to go and debunk that. Some people have that approach. Well, as your pastors, we, had, we reject the second and third approach, the hermeneutical approach and the, the critical approach. And what we believe is the first approach, the, the traditional approach, that this text applies to all cultures in all times and is transcendent. So the reason why we reject the other views is because they unpersuasively attempt to explain away culturally embarrassing material. For example, the critical approach fails to fails because it, it, even though it saves Paul from male chauvinism, it cunningly and sort of conveniently turns Paul into a feminist or the other view, the hermeneutical approach fails because it unpersuasively attempts to just sort of interpret away what would appear to be it's embarrassing. So we agree with the first approach. We believe these texts transcend culture and therefore apply to us today. But with that said, the question still remains, what does it mean? When Paul says, let the women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says, what does that mean? What, what, what is Paul getting at here? And for our purposes tonight, what does this text mean? If anything... For the subject of women and prayer in the local church. Well, let's start in 1 Corinthians 14 with a subject of prophecy. Because this is really what this chapter is about. It's about doing all things decently and in order. It's all about edification. It's about spiritual gifts. And really the bulk of this chapter is about prophecy. He says the very beginning, uh, verse 1, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Okay, and then he goes on and he just talks about prophecy verse after verse. I mean, he just keeps going and going and going, really all the way until you get to verse 26. I mean, he's just talking about get tongues and prophecy. And really his main argument in chapter 14 is that, man, these Corinthians are so fired up about the, the fact that they can speak in tongues or that they want to speak in tongues. And Paul says, I can speak in tongues more than all of you. But that's not what you should be excited about. Because that's not edifying. What's edifying is when you speak a a word of prophecy. Because prophecy builds up the church where a tongue speaker builds up himself. And what we're all about here in Corinth is building up the church, not building up ourselves. So if someone does speak in a tongue, there needs to be an interpreter. Because without an interpreter, it's totally not edifying. With an interpreter, it could be edifying. But the whole point of 1 Corinthians 14 is edification. And we have several indications in the New Testament that this prophetic gift, that is prophecy, was bestowed upon and exercised by women no less than by men. I mean, in Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost, which P.T. talked about this morning, 
He explicitly said that the characteristic of the present church age is the Spirit's impartation to both men and women of this prophecy, this prophetic gift. Look closely at Joel's promise. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. What does it say there? It says, and this is a quotation of Joel 2. Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Luke says, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall see dreams even upon my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Okay, so in Acts chapter 20, in chapter 21, verse 9, Luke refers to the four daughters of Philip. Okay, so just all the way to chapter 1 as having this gift of prophecy. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul gives instructions regarding how women were to pray and to how women were to not only pray, but how women were to prophesy in the church meeting. So then what does he mean in 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty four when he says, let the women keep silent in the church for they're not permitted to speak? I mean, how does that fit with 1 Corinthians 11 and his instructions about how women should pray and prophesy? And how does that fit with the narrative that we have of the early church and uh, operating in Acts? Well, at the outset, one thing to remember about 1 Corinthians, as with all epistles, is that Paul did not sort of sit down and write a collection of theological sayings. So this isn't a systematic theology. Instead, Paul sat down and he wrote or dictated a letter, which means in the first place that Paul is not jumping all over the place, sort of addressing random topics as they come to him. Instead, this letter is a coherent piece of writing with a logical progression and thought flow. So he has a point, he has a purpose, and he's going somewhere with it. Second, it means that Paul was not asking himself, hmm... What are the general principles that I should send to Corinth today? Paul wasn't just sort of sitting there saying, well, I bet this will be, I bet this will be in the Bible one day, so I better cover a lot of ground as I sit down to write now. No, he, he wasn't writing about a theoretical set of issues that could happen someday in the church. He's addressing real issues that are really causing problems in the Corinthian church. So whatever he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 14, he's responding to serious problems. Okay? So, when we're trying to understand what Paul means here, we cannot grasp the full sense of his meaning by reading one verse alone. You can't just rip a verse out and just say, hey, well, I mean, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 says right here, uh, it says the women should keep silent in the church if they're not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says, and then build a systematic theology on that. It would just be a really poor handling of God's Word. I, don't, I really don't know anybody that does that. But it happens. It certainly happens in our day. We have to be far more careful when we read Scripture. So this verse, and the reason why we can't do that is because Paul wrote in one coherent whole, and the context matters, the verse is related to what comes before it and what comes after it, and it can only make sense in light of its surroundings. That's just a basic principle of careful Bible study. Now, space and time prevents me from outlining, obviously, the whole book and the point of kind of where Paul's been. But let's just back up to chapter 12 for a second, where Paul gives us an indication of what his focus is for this portion of the letter. 
And I referenced this verse a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning, and it says this, 12.1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Okay? So in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he establishes the very, sort of a very basic protocol for discerning whether or not someone who claims to be led by the Holy Spirit actually is. How do you know? And he's sort of setting up a, a, a way to discern that. How do you determine if someone's use of their gift is actually from the Lord? In short, if they speak rightly, this, is, this would be Paul's shorthand, if they speak rightly about Jesus, well then clearly that's not coming from a demon. Because the demonic realm would never speak accurately about Jesus. Or, if they speak wrongly about Jesus, then it's sure not coming from the Holy Spirit. So I think that's clear. Then in chapter 12, verses 4 through 31, what Paul does is he discusses the diversity of spiritual gifts given to the whole body of Christ, which is where we've been in this gift series. And how they work together in unity. No one can boast in or despise anyone's gift or... They can't look down on somebody else or say they're better because they have a particular gift and someone else doesn't because we're all members of the same body. So that's chapter 12. Then you get to chapter 13. We have this grand chapter on love, which is just awesome, right in the middle here. Paul's famous chapter on love. And it dovetails right on this subject. It speaks about how we as a body should interact with each other, showing, showing what real love looks like. Now, you might, be, you might be tempted to think at first glance that that just seems random, like this thing on love right in the middle of spiritual gifts in 12 and spiritual gifts in 14. You've got this thing in love in the middle, and it's not random. I mean, it's so important to understanding this whole pericope of 12 through 14. This is not a random insertion. Love should rule the way we exercise our gifts. That's the point. We don't judge the gifting of another, chapter 12, and we don't run roughshod over people with our own gifts, chapter 14. Chapter 14, gifts are gone, have gone crazy. People are running roughshod over other people. Chapter 12, the issue in chapter 12 is that we should love. We should love. It should rule the way we exercise those gifts. We don't judge one another. So the exercise of spiritual gifts requires patience, kindness, long-suffering, humility, and so on. That's the point of chapter 13. Then you get to this chapter, chapter 14. And Paul begins getting more specific on how love should dictate the way we exercise our spiritual gifts. Okay, so we've had this whole thing on love. Now let's apply it. And Paul's going to get really specific in 14 and say, folks, it really comes down to this. These are problems that are happening in the church in Corinth right now. And love dictates, chapter 13 dictates that you fix this and this and this and this. And that's what he's about in chapter 14. Having set all the principles in chapter 13, he's going to hash out the details in 14. So in chapter 14, 1 through 25, all the way through verse 25, he validates the gifts of tongues and prophecy as well as he sets some appropriate context for their use. So Paul has no problem with tongues and no problem with prophecy in the early church. And he's saying, okay, but if they're going to be used, this is the way in which they should be used. So let me lay down some ground rules for these gifts. According to Paul, the gift of tongues is, it's great and it's edifying for an individual believer, but it's not edifying, as I said a minute ago, for the congregation, unless there's an interpretation. In short, prophecy is really his big deal in 14, is much more effective for ministering at a corporate level. Okay, that's 1 through 25. Now, verse 26 through 39, Paul follows up on this theme. And it's in this passage that we find these words. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches. Now, 
just one more detail here. Verse 26, look at 26. It does two important things for understanding this passage. Let's read 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up or for edification. Okay, and that's going to do two important things here. First, it gives us insight into the real problem at Corinth that Paul's addressing. Why is he stressing edification? Obviously, something's happening that's not lending to edification. Right? So he's going to stress edification. Secondly, it shows his basic plan for correcting the problem. The problem is there's a lack of edification. So therefore, how do we correct the problem? That's what he's doing. So in 1426, he says that. He says, when you come together, each one has all these things. And so he says, let's fix that. Okay. The congregation at Corinth was eager to exercise their spiritual gifts. And, and that's good. According to 14.1, he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. What wasn't good, though, was that everyone had something to say. And everyone was determined to say it in front of the whole assembly, come what may. So I've got a word and John DeVito's got a word and Joyce has a word and Blake has a word and and Mackenzie has a word and Adam's got a word and Dwayne's got a word and everybody's sort of coming at this whole thing at once. And and, and it's it's just not edifying. It's just fundamentally not edifying. And so everybody has something to say and the assembly is not helped. Everyone's feeling entitled to their own spot or their own time in the spotlight. And Paul's corrective is found in verse 26. Let all things be done for edification. Now, it's great that the Corinthians are operating in the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's good. But again, what's not good is that their public use of these gifts, they needed to be, they needed to be changed. The way they're doing them, that, that needs to be changed. It needs to be worked out. The gifts, in other words, this is another way to say it. The gifts need to be secondary to the, to the whole principle of edification. I mean, it's great that you have a gift, but what's more important than your gift is edification. So, I mean, even if you have a gift, I mean, Paul's not saying you don't have the gift. He's saying that the way you use your gift either lends to edification or takes away from it. So edification is the highest principle here, and that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying it's more important that everyone is edified than for one person to get a chance to speak. And we see this worked out in the next several stanzas of the letter. Look at verses 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, you could call these rules, okay? If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most. That's interesting, isn't it? He's getting real specific here. At most, three. And each one in turn... So I think that's fascinating because you get into some sort of Pentecostal context and you just everybody's sort of doing this thing at once. And Paul's real clear that this happens in order. Okay. So two or at most three, each in turn and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent. Now, notice that's the first use of the word silent. It has to do with tongue speaking. Let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, Paul isn't saying that the tongue speakers are bad, they're out of line, and they're unwelcome in the church. He encourages tongue speaking. Instead, he's limiting their number, presumably to prevent an endless line of people sharing in tongues and mandates that there be an endless amount of people standing there to interpret those tongues. 
So no matter how accurate and how awesome the inspiration is for the tongue speaker, if the congregation doesn't understand, then nobody is edified and helped. Moreover, if there are too many tongue speakers to all share that week, or else there's no interpreter, the people are instructed to keep it between themselves and the Lord, so he corrects the problem. Look at verse 29. How does he correct it? He says, let two or three, he goes on, he says, he corrects the problem in, sorry, in verses 27 and 28. He says, let two or three, uh, at most three, and let them go in turn and be interpreted. Okay? Now, next section, verse 29. He's going to move on to prophecy. So tongues, okay, just, just pull back for a second. Make sure you're, you're with me, make sure you're tracking with me. Tongues has a set of rules with it. Interpretation, two or at most three, and in turn. And silence, if there's no interpreter, silence shows up. Okay, verse 29. He's going to move on to prophets and he's going to say, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep, what's the word there? Silent. That's the second time the word shows up. For you can all prophesy one by one, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Okay, so... What's he saying there? Well, two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. The others meaning the, the assembly. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. Now, listen to this. He says, for you can all prophesy. Notice the word all. Again, that's inclusive language. He doesn't say all the men can prophesy. He says you can all prophesy. I mean, says, we have to read scripture carefully. Every word is important. You can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So Paul, again, limits the number of people who may share. Just two or three, he says. And he insists on accountability to determine if the word is a genuine word of the Lord or not. So again, let me just give you a category here. Prophecy in in the New Testament was always depicted as something that was inferior to the word of God. Prophecy was not equal to Scripture. In the New Testament, not in Paul's view. Now, that's New Testament prophecy. You say, what about Old Testament prophecy? Yeah, in the Old Testament, the prophet spoke in such a way that it it was considered if he misspoke, stoning or death was punishment for that. But in the New Testament, Paul never depicts New Testament prophecy as being equal to the word of God. This is a classic example of why that's not the case. So he's saying that in, it, prophecy has to be judged by the word of God. He insists on accountability to determine if the word is a genuine word of the Lord or not. Okay, what, what, why else are they judging this? They're sitting by and they're, lear- and they're listening to this and they're judging it. Okay, judging it on the basis of what? What's the standard? Just their sort of own uh, feeling? Is this some whim? No, they're judging it on the basis of scripture. And Paul reminds them that no matter how inspired they feel, they are to rule their own spirits using self-control. And again, here's the big principle for the sake of edification. Edification is the point. Now, verse 33, this is the tail end of the above passage. And it's another massive indicator of what Paul, Paul's intentions are in this passage. Okay, so here, here we are, back up again. Two uses of the word silence. One has to do with tongue speaking. One has to do with prophecy. And now we're moving on into the passage that we're talking about this evening. Verse 33. He says, For God is not the author of confusion, which is why edification is so important, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
That's interesting. You, you almost expect him to say, God is not the author of, of confusion. He's the, he's the author of order. But he says peace. But that's fine. Well, you, we, we, we can glean a lot from that word peace. He doesn't have to say order. It means the same thing. Peaceful. I mean, that's what peace is. Peace is order in the churches. The problem in Corinth was not about women praying or prophesying. Okay? So if you come to this passage with that idea in mind, you're, you're just missing it. The point is edification. It's not even about gender. The issue, the whole issue in 14 is edification. And he's assuming women are involved in all this. So the problem is, the problem is, is in, Corinth, in, in Corinth is chaos. Disorder, that's the problem. I mean, now just simply, as you're sitting there, try to imagine a scenario. This is just painful. Try to imagine a scenario where... Um, if, you know, if everybody's speaking and, and, and speaking a tongue and, and giving a prophetic word all at once and all this is happening and you don't know what's going on or who's interpreting what, it's just complete chaos. I mean, if Paul has to tell the tongue speakers and the prophets to go in turn, what must they have been doing before? Why does he say each one go in turn? I mean, that assumes that they're not going in turn, I think. Undoubtedly, they're either talking all at once or they're fighting for the right to speak. Now, just imagine a church meeting with a couple of dozen people all fighting for who gets to go next. And some of them weren't even going to speak in a language that you can understand. That doesn't sound very helpful. And it doesn't sound very helpful to Paul. And it's so, therefore, he says it's not edifying. Now, the reason why I'm taking time to emphasize the context is that this is the same point Paul has in the next verses. Paul doesn't sort of switch here and say, now we're going to go into systematic theology mode and talk about the role of women and, and, and sort of unpack, you know, something that's totally unrelated to this issue of edification. Now, he is going to talk about the role of women, but it's, it's tightly connected to his point. So he, he doesn't suddenly switch gears and start talking about a totally unrelated issue as, as if to say, whoops, hold that thought. I, I just remembered that be sure to keep the women in line. That's not what's going on in the text. Look at verse 34. He says, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is shameful or disgraceful. That's a very important word. The word could probably be better translated improper. And we'll get to that word in a second for women to speak in church. Now, remember, Paul is dealing with congregational chaos. So what's so chaotic? Let me ask this question. What's so chaotic about women speaking? Is a woman's voice somehow more disruptive than a man's voice? Well, certainly not. I think there's two main reasons why this is obviously the case. First, in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, just three chapters earlier, Paul is talking about whether or not women should wear head coverings when they pray or prophesy. So he's not simply talking about how they should be attired when they show up for worship. Listen carefully, follow with me carefully. He's not just talking about how a woman should be attired when she shows up for worship, but specifically how a woman should conduct herself when she's leading out in public prayer or prophecy. Leading out in prayer and prophecy doesn't sound like silence. 
So it's something that Paul fully expected and endorsed women doing. So already we see that in in 1435, Paul must be talking about something here other than absolute silence. Okay, and let me just, here's, here's another layer here. Three times the word silence shows up to the tongue speakers, to those who are speaking prophecies, and now to the women. Now, do, do we assume that Paul is saying that you can't speak in tongues anymore when he says keep silent? No, he's saying in that particular context, in that particular situation, you need to be silent. If you're not going to follow the order or the rules, then remain silent. Then he goes to the prophets. Does he, are we supposed to assume that the word silence means absolute silence? Don't open your mouth. Don't speak in the context of the church. Of course not. He's encouraging prophecy. But he says in that particular context, there's a rule. There's a way to do this. And if you don't do this correctly, then you should remain silent. Now, but I think the most obvious point here is that Paul tells us what he's talking about in verse 36. He says, if, they, if the women want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. This is such an important verse. If they want to learn something. Why is he talking about learning? How does learning something relate to speaking? I mean, these are the questions you have to ask when you're doing serious exegesis. Paul just said, I do not permit a woman to speak. Question, why is he talking about learning? What's the link between learning and speaking? It's not random. He's, got, he's going somewhere with this thing. Okay? And it has to do with the manner in which they were asking questions. That's the point. Paul is not forbidding women from prayer or prophecy or tongue speaking. That's clear from 14. It's clear from, there's, in fact, there's three verses in chapter 14 alone where he says, all may do this, all may do this, all may do this, which is inclusive language. And then chapter 11, which we've already seen is clear. Women are, are prophesying and praying. So he 